Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled, Evaluation of Force Feedback in Walking Using Joint Torques as Naturalistic Stimuli. Joining us today are Editor-in-Chief, Professor Nino Ramirez, Associate Editor and Co-Author, Professor Ansgar Bushkes, and Co-Authors, Professor Sasha Zill and Dr. Nicholas Shazinski. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Thank you very much, Jamie. And uh, thank you very much, Sasha, Nicholas, and, and Anska. And well, this will be a family affair because, I mean, Sasha and, and Anska, we go back 20, 30 years, actually, and, and we've been friends forever. And so I really look forward to talking to you about proprioception and uh, specifically the role of force feedback in locomotion. And we picked your paper not only because we're all friends, but also because I believe that the insect can tell us so much about integration of dynamic events that shape force and load during leg movements. And also much can be learned by by looking at these six-legged walking machines. So since I'm hoping that this podcast uh, reaches a broad audience, maybe Let's first talk about the different types of proprioceptors involved in insect locomotion. And here you studied the role of specifically the company forms in Scylla, but maybe you can talk about what do they signal to the nervous system and, and how is this information, let's say, different from Harris and Scylla or the cortotonal organ. So why don't we start with this question? Well, you know, I, I think that the difference is actually between detecting the occurrence of movements versus when those movements are resisted and you're trying to do something is for me the difference. And this is true in both vertebrates and in invertebrates. So you can detect movements and you detect unrestricted movements largely by uh, the joint angle receptors or more complexly can be also signaled by muscle spindles in a vertebrate. And in invertebrates, in insects in particular, there are receptors that are called hair plates that are actually signaling the same variables at the joints. But also, and Anska has done a great deal of work on it, as you mentioned, cortisonal organs. And cortisonal organs are complex and internal receptors, but they're also capable of signaling joint movements and joint positions. But I think the important thing about having force receptors is that if you have a limb, you need to know not only where in space it is going, but to monitor whether that those movements are being resisted. And by resisted, I mean when a leg makes contact with the surface, you're suddenly not generating a movement, you're moving your body. And that's one of the key things insofar as the differentiation for force reception is that it's actually monitoring whether or not the muscle contractions are effective in the sense of how can they move things against the load. And that I think is a common, it's the mechanics and Nick could certainly comment on this, but I think that it's the mechanics of locomotion that really brings about the similarities, many of the similarities between vertebrate and invertebrate systems. But essentially there are the parallels that you could say that things that are monitoring positions and movements are, are like muscle spindles or, or cortisonal organs versus things that are specifically signaling force like Golgi tendon organs or compoundiform sensilla. But 
there are also situations, and it's important to keep in mind that for convergence, that even in vertebrates, there are receptors of the skin that are stretched. And this can be used for force feedback and really is the source of force feedback for things like the muscles of your face for facial expression, which don't have muscle spindles, but instead rely upon the skin being stretched. So there are modalities that are similar, but there's also, in a sense, the need for convergence. Beautiful. I mean, this is this is really like the whole topic of I think this talk today or the the, the podcast to to talk about you know the role of naturalistic and context dependent stimuli and how important it is not to just say it's load or force or it's it's a movement. But let me just go back quickly to the comparison and you you started it. You know, the company from Sensilla functions somewhat like the Golgi tendon organs in mammals. But of course, there's a huge difference because insects have an ex exoskeleton, which has many different mechanical properties than the endoskeleton in mammals. So maybe rather than generalizing what can uh, what company form Sensilla can do versus the tendon organs, maybe we can go to, to the differences between them. You know, what can company form Sensilla do that a tendon organ cannot do because of their location, for example, and, and et cetera? Oh, This was actually in, in the earliest work of John Pringle, who is still one of my heroes in terms of science, because in the 1930s, he was the first person to record the activities of campaniforms that sell it, and also carefully map them out. And he pointed out that one key difference, so that Sensilla are monitoring strains in the exoskeleton, whereas things like tendon organs are monitoring strains actually the, the forces generated by individual muscles or even motor units. And that what campaniforms that Silica can do, because particularly the ones that are located near joints, is to signal the forces that are generated by groups of muscles. So it's actually more related to, it, it's simpler in the sense that you are not taking the information from every muscle or every part of every muscle but instead monitoring how those things are affecting the exoskeleton. And so that's one sense that is a real difference, but may be advantageous for the simplification that, that invertebrates have. But it is also a difference in the sense that, at least from that information, you don't have the degree of control that you could have if you were a vertebrate. And I think it's the degree of control and the flexibility that The tendon organs don't just project the spinal levels, they're actually also going to the cerebral cortex so that the information is. So it, there's much more flexibility in a tendon organ, but it may be simpler in terms of motor control for campaniform sensor. Clearly, yeah. there could be differences to that too. You know, Sasha, it's nice that you men mentioned this historical recordings. And, and I just saw a, a beautiful review by John Tuttle where he actually shows his recordings from the company from Sincilla during walking. So the listener should, should try to find this review. It's, it's beautiful going from the historical to, to, the, to the modern times. And yeah, I think this was wonderful that you, you, you differentiated, you know, this, the, what the tendon organ can do and what the, what the component from Sincilla can do. Now, one of the differences is also that I think the company from Sincilla can measure the direction of the movement, correct? How does that matter in this context here for locomotion? Well, I, I think that you have to 
keep in mind that, and this is actually sort of the basis for a lot of the, the analysis of the mechanics. The state, your statement is correct that Golgi tendon organs are not signaling the direction of the muscle contractions, essentially, of the forces that are generated. But muscles occur within the body in fixed positions. And so if you know the information about the position, you are essentially determining, can determine the directionality of it. So while they're not, the, the difference is really in terms of the mechanical coupling of them, how it is that it's linked to the forces that are being generated. And the tendon organs are measuring the strain and the tendons, and therefore they're not necessarily related to the organ, the, like the direction of walking or the, the way we think of directionality being used. But on the other hand, and while compatiforms that still are, and so I think that, that what the difference really is, is again, in, in terms of the flexibility of it, the system is simpler in an invertebrate in that it's telling you the force and some information, at least within the reference frame of the leg, meaning it, within the actual anatomical leg, which way the forces are being directed. And tendon organs, you could derive the same information, but you need the additional information to be able to do it in terms of knowing the position of the legs. So I think that there is, again, a simplification that's occurring on the level of the invertebrates, but that the, the end result in terms of the control could be similar, just its vertebrates have many more neurons for doing things than invertebrates do. Yeah, so I mean, uh, Sasha, I think everything you're saying makes perfect sense in regards to uh, both vertebrates and invertebrates have access to the same kinds of information. But I, I want to I, I go out on a limb here and say that I think actually the insect probably has access to a richer sense of force data within this specific context. Because for example, if you were to take my forearm and apply a torque that my elbow would have to resist, I wouldn't have any Golgi tendon organ that could detect that force in that component. I would have other sensory modalities that would be measuring the strain within my bones or joints, and that would be very uncomfortable. Uh, but what I think is very cool about the Campaniform is that it can also sense forces that are outside the plane of the leg or in components that the muscles can't directly react to. So to me, it seems like uh, almost a, I don't know, I, somehow it's maybe a little bit more flexible than cortitonal organs in what they can measure. But at the end of the day, I'm sure both vertebrates and invertebrates have ways to measure these same components of force. Nicholas, it's so funny that you said that because I kind of felt almost the same thing that in fact, you know, that the, the insect is, is, more refined in, in what information it can process. But of course, it's a necessity also because on the other hand, they have much less motor neurons as such, Sasha mentioned. So, so it is really like they have to, to, to monitor sensory modalities in a very, very complex way with much less neurons, and uh, which is totally fascinating. I think the take-home message here of this whole paper is that, you know, how complex really force measurements is you know and and now the the other oh sorry Ansgar, you wanted to say something but 
No, I just wanted to go sort of actually to, to support both Sasha and Nick in, in saying that when we look at Golgi tendon organs, they give information sort of in the axis about force generated in the axis of the muscle. When we look at the specifics of the Campaniform sensilla fields and, and the places where they are located on the leg, then we see that they have, as Nick said, a broader tuning curve in a sense, because they are not they are affected by muscle contraction when the leg is loaded for, or against the resistance. But as, as Nick pointed out, and it may be that the organization of the limb with an inter or exoskeleton uh, comes up for that because essentially that may ask for a different report system for combining load generated by the muscles on two load signals or four signals acting on a segment of the leg from the outside. This is what you cannot have with a tendon organ. That's great. Ansgar, and maybe coming back to Sasha's approach to, to really study a naturalistic stimuli, have people done this also in the mammalian system or can this be a guide for what you need to do in a mammalian system to really decipher how, how the, the tendon organs actually encode load? You know, if I could address that, yeah. I mean... I think that one of the, the things that really kind of came out of this, thinking about this problem is that as far as vertebrate systems goes, it would be, there are very few examples of recordings of tendon organs in freely moving animals. And whereas we have an entire literature that is recording the activity of compoundiform sensory even during walking. And so I think that the context of it was really understanding better what it was, the, the, the signals that were actually occurring in a walking animal. And that was a problem addressed very early on that we we're trying to figure out. And I think that the approach of using the stimuli that are closely related to what it is that the forces occur within walking, the, the opportunity came from the, uh, Joseph Schmitz and Chris Dahlman actually doing the difficult work of determining the joint torques by inverse dynamics. Again, I mean, the number of studies, there are a number of studies using inverse dynamics in vertebrates, but very few people have really tried to say, okay, what does this tell us about the motor system and, and utilize those techniques for analyzing what it is that the nervous system is generating. And so I hope that, that this will spur more research in terms of just force measurements and what are the forces that are actually being controlled in a vertebrate animal. Yeah, and I think, but it's of course very difficult to do, correct? Very. I mean, the beauty about the exoskeleton is that you can actually do things that is almost impossible because I know that we did these experiments with care and, and, and you know, activating the 1B, I mean, that did not look like a, a walking animal anymore. And, and sorry, Anska, you want to say something here? No, no. I think this, this, the study and using naturalistic stimuli opens a new door for analyzing the role of and the processing of joint talks inside the, the, the central nervous system. And the reason is, it goes as follows. I, I'm one of the people, lucky I am together with Sasha, in collaborating and using simple stimuli, ramp and hold and so forth. This is nice and good if you want to know who talks <laughs> to who. But if you want to understand the dynamics of the conversation, if you want to understand what the dependencies on the, for example, adaptational properties, et cetera, et cetera, are, 
then you need something better than just nicely defined stimuli, which actually come from, from theoretical considerations also carried out with people that do Fourier analysis, which is so this biocybernetic analysis of systems. But the animal doesn't know about biocybernetics. The animal uses those stimuli during walking to control the forces generated. And in that sense, I think I'm actually, to be honest, I think I will now always think which way do I need to stimulate? What is the question? Do I under, want to understand the, the working of the software that I activate with the system? Then I need the naturalistic stimuli. Do I want to just show, oh, there is an influence? Then it may be good enough to have some artificial. But that, I think, in the long run, at least for company form Sensilla, I think there will be a change in what you find in the literature, definitely towards naturalistic stimuli. Or, Sasha? Yeah, just to echo it, I, I agree with that, but you really need both. You really need the formulation of things that are using the, the rampant holes functions or sine wave functions really tells you about what could this sense organ be detecting. And so it provides you with the information that's necessary really for understanding what it is that the signals are being, that are being generated during the naturalistic stimuli. So I really don't want to say that, well, this is going to completely replace everything. You really need both of them. But again, as Ansgar was saying, all of the theoretical formulations based upon the formal stimuli distinguishing phasic and tonic activities don't give you the ideas, the information that's necessary for understanding when those the naturalistic stimuli are really combining what we consider to be static and dynamic all the way through. And I think that Nick's model is really coming closer to actually being able to provide a formulation that will combine these things. And I think that's one of the things that really, and so far as the future goes, we really need to be looking at both with the information that we have available from formal things, but applying it within the context of what the animal is actually doing. I mean, that's not so different than people looking in the field of vision, you know, where you want to also provide visual stimulation that is naturalistic versus, you know, what is direction sensitivity versus, you know, like uh, color sensitivity, etc. And also, I think there, this complexity and dynamics of sensory modality is so key. So, so I think it's wonderful to see this in, in the field of proprioception coming as, as the key key part to really understand proprioception. Now, may I ask you, in fact, when we talk about naturalistic stimuli, they will be probably very different for the different types of legs, correct? I mean, the middle leg has different functions than the foreleg and the hind leg, etc. And do these company forms and still play different roles now in the different legs or... Well, I, I'm sure Anska and my colleagues could address it, but th we're actually looking at this right now in experiments and comparing middle legs to hind legs. And so far, the, in, the information, the types of information that's being supplied seems quite similar. And that it's probably more in Anska's realm of how it is that the information is being processed and what it is. And since it's dependent upon the behavior, the feedback for force feedback occurs when the muscles are contracting, it is a sense in which the things can be similar in terms of the types of feedback you're getting 
but be incorporated in really different ways and different legs. But it's ongoing work. I think one study, Sasha, we, is already, was already published, um, the comparison between cockroach and stick insect with respect to the influence of false feedback on, 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 on legs, um, looking at muscle synergies. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and the, many of the basic synergies are the same, but this really comes from the mechanics. I mean, the insect legs are actually simpler in the construction than most vertebrate legs are and the degrees of freedom that it has. There are a number of things that can occur at the body wall, but within the leg itself, it's much more limited in terms of the types of forces that can occur or can be generated. Mm -hmm. yeah, and and you know you are completely right because this this concept there's an insect has six legs two pairs or four two pair the uh, two legs per pair the misconception that we always carry away is that as these legs are homologue they will have the same kind of control and this is dead wrong because it starts with the kinematics and with the kinematics you immediately are when you then think about the dynamics then you immediately see that the foreleg of an of an of a stick insect or a, a fruit fly or a cockroach must definitely be differently controlled in order to generate the specific of a stance and the swing phase because only the name of the phases is the same, but the kinematics and dynamics are completely different. And I think this is actually, we just had a, had a graduate thesis work on, on fruit fly and looking at specific neuro, neurogenetically modified lines. And yes, you do see that the same Cambodian-form sensilla group can have different influence on foreleg or hind leg. And that's, and that's to be expected because these legs just look similar or are homologue, but they have to do different things. Yeah. And I mean, of course, I can tell you like on our property, we have lots of mantis and ah, it is yeah. so <laughs> fascinating to see these mantis. And there you have a clear specialization. And you know what? We just had a podcast on, on depth perception in mammals. And it is such a complex process and it's so difficult and and you have to take information from the environment you have to learn this uh, over a long period of time and just i mean like when i look at this mantis i have absolutely no clue how they can have this precise depth perception and coordinate this with the leg movement of 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 the forelegs and 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 the timing etc so God, you know, like simplifying something about insects is really not possible. It's, uh, I mean, these are magical animals. So, well, Nino, you know, that one of the experiments that we just started doing was looking at the receptors in front legs. And remarkably, there have not been a lot of studies on front legs because people oftentimes throw up their hands and just say things are too complicated. But they are the only legs that in most insects the animal can see. So in terms of visual guidance of leg movements, they actually are unique. And that, so there certainly is grounds for thinking that the control may be much more complex. And I think that even our guess is that things are, the tuning of their sensory receptors is even finer, that they are able to, being able to detect things and, and potentially control them more with front legs than with any, any of the other pairs of legs. But this is ongoing research. But Sasha, I'm so, so glad that you're so young, so you can still continue <laughs> for another 30 years. Uh, 
doing I, this. I but... could say, say the same for you, Nino. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but I have less hair. Uh, but no, it's fascinating, Sasha. And and to, you talked about tuning, and of course, you know, in the in the mammalian system, you have the the gamma neurons, etc., and and a lot of tuning going on. And uh, is there something like this uh, with regards to the company from Cecilia that that you can change the cuticle or something like that and and tune the sensitivity or not? Well, there, there are neuromodulators that can modulate sensitivities. But in terms of the actual efferent control, I think I would defer to Ansgar because I think that one of the major mechanisms, and it's not dissimilar, but is really presynaptic inhibition because the sense organs may be sending all of this information, but an important function of the nervous system is actually to filter that information, even at a primary level, so that you don't necessarily have the same type of efferent control for muscle spindles, which you don't have, by the way, also for tendon organs, but where the major level of control that's appearing is in, what do you do with this information when it's arriving at the nervous system? And Anthony's group has done some wonderful experiments that way. Yeah, and, and I think that's, uh, yeah, we just had another podcast on the, on the non-spiking neurons. And, and also something that the insects, I think, perfected is the idea of, of having within the same neuron different zones of processing that can help in, in, in modulating this. And then, of course, Ansgar and I, I think we, we work together on, on the neuromodulation of, of proprioception in, in insects, which I think is weird that it doesn't exist in mammals. So maybe it does exist, but people haven't looked to see whether, you know, biogenic amines or something modulate receptors in the periphery. But yeah, I think, again, it's, it's, it's fascinating what insects uh, develop and clearly far from simple. Now, another very quick, quick question. And of course, it's like 30 years of work. What that means is, did you look at the interaction between the company from Sensilla and the other Sensilla in these naturalistic stimuli condition? Again, Ansgar would be the person to address this because I think <laughs> that some of the beautiful work that's coming out from Karina Gephardt is really looked at exactly that. So Ansgar? Yeah, but we did. And we did look at the interaction between load um, signals from the company form, see, company form sensilla and movement signals from the from a proprioceptor like the caudotonal organ. And yes, Sasha, it is, as you say, and they uh, already talk to each other at the level of presynaptic uh, influences on the afferents entering the ganglia, number one. Number two, in a resting animal, we now know that load information drastically affects the gain of movement feedback processing. But with regard to your question, Nino, is there any sort of efferent control of company form sensilla tuning, like, like what you were getting at? At the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, and I thought before we had the podcast, I think there's only examples for other sense organs, but not for company form sensilla at the moment. But, um, and I think this, this, uh, the work that is now possible with naturalistic stimuli is, and particularly with um, from company from Sensilla, because it allows us to play the melody of talk feedback on the processing of, um, for example, movement feedback in a naturalistic way. And this is very important because, for example, muscle spindle stimulation, you can get away with very simple 
um, if, except that you need to um, get the gamma motor neuron, neurons controlled. But essentially, it's length. And that's the same with the cordotonal organ. Okay, so you can mimic sort of joint movements during stepping easily with the stimulus. For the talk, that with naturalistic stimuli, I would be really excited and interested to see how that modifies in a, with naturalistic stimuli the processing of movement feedback. And I, I think it will probably be even stronger than what we know from those standard stimuli that we have used up to now. I, one thing that I should add is that, that it really is a complex problem. But the interesting thing that, is, that Nick has developed is in, in so far as both the simulations and the motor control thing is to be able to combine those two in, in ways that are very difficult to do experimentally. It's very difficult to apply forces in a, a leg that you're moving. And whereas it, you can do it in simulation and learn a lot from just looking at a robot that is trying to do the same thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, these kinds of methods, uh, you know, we, we can only make them happen because of the hard work of people who came before us. But uh, yeah, these days what we can do is we build a leg that mimics the kinematics of whatever insect we're interested in. We mount strain sensors on the leg, much like the Campaniform sensilla. We can put them wherever we want at whatever orientations. Uh, and then we build dynamical neural models, mathematical models that simulate the responses of the different sensory afferents and how they impinge upon the non-spiking interneurons and how these then activate the motor neurons. And we can build a closed loop robotic model and then we can do whatever the heck we want. Uh, and so uh, right now I have a really talented student, Clarissa Goldsmith, who just published a really great paper looking at how these different sensory modalities may impact one another uh, in a very context dependent way, uh, depending on whether the animal is in its quote unquote resting state or whether it's in a quote unquote active state and you know actively walking around. Uh, a result of all of the neurophysiology that's come before and then also so many of these robotics techniques are more accessible than ever. Uh, that's really let us make some really exciting models in my opinion. Nick, and I think you, you know, this is also the beauty here that you took computational neuroscience to, to a different level, basically uh, understanding that you cannot just have the, the neural networks model, but you need to have the interaction with the actual movement. And so I think this three-dimensional realistic modeling is just fascinating. And obviously it will be very, very important for, uh, you know, building robots going forward. And, and so really congratulations for that wonderful work. Nick, oh, you want to say you. Yeah, that's, that's the hope, you know, right now, the systems we can model are, you know, controllers for single joints or single legs. If we're willing to make a lot of assumptions and uh, hypotheses, you know, we've, we've made controllers for, for all six legs and how they should coordinate themselves and walk around. But yeah, our hope is that as, you know, we continue to collect more and more data about how these sensory systems actually respond and how the nervous system actually creates these uh, motor outputs, uh, our hope is that our models will get more and more capable until we just end up with a, a robot that can walk around like an insect. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see where that goes. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, I think what's beautiful from this work is that what we are saying, seeing is an orchestration of sensory uh, modalities that then basically are working together with the nervous system and the legs and all the, the constraints of the, the muscles and 
and the, the bones or exo exoskeleton. Now, we haven't really talked, but when we talk about uh, locomotion, we think about like swing and stance phase. And uh, to what extent is this a simplification that you have only a swing or a stance phase? And what is the role of these campaniformis and cilla during these different phases? And sorry, one more thing. How is this different to the, the mammalian system where we have also swing and stance phase? Well, I think that one of the things that we are wrote about and are already exploring is that that the campaniform sensilla can signal both increases in forces and decreases in forces. And I think that one of the key things in terms of the differentiation between swing and stance is that swing is moving the leg to the desired position, but it's not exerting any force other than that needed to be able to lift the leg. Stance is when the animal actually puts the foot or the leg on the substrate and moves the body. And so I think that that differentiation in terms of swing and stance is really not different from an insect or a vertebrate or a robot. And so the differentiation there functionally is it can be really considered to be homologous, but the signaling that's occurring is, can be quite different invertebrates respond to uh, at the end of stance phase to unloading of the leg when the other legs the other leg has taken up the load and that allows it to enter into swing. But the specific way in which that processing is occurring is not really known. Whereas in invertebrates there is now evidence that there really are signals coming from force receptors that are signaling unloading and that what happens is that that's it can be combined with the information about leg position that allows the system to be able to enter into a phase in which it's moving and the leg is lifted and moving forward. And furthermore, the control mechanisms as far as the swing phase goes, swing is really where you determine what it is that a leg is the goal of what it is the movements are and because it, occur, it occurs in terms of what is the directionality that the leg is moving in? So that's similar to them in both vertebrates and invertebrates. And it's not necessarily dependent upon the force feedback. So I think that the similarity is that the swing phase is largely independent of force feedback, whereas the stance is very strongly dependent upon it. So I think that that differentiation is meaningful. Now, if you have two legs, the problem is much, in a way, much more complicated than if you have six legs, because you can have individual legs be lifted or not lifted. And this leads to a potentially bewildering collection of gates that can occur in invertebrates. So that it's, it's, there are two sides to it, but I think that the, the problem of having many legs is that it makes you more stable but you have to be aware of what all the legs are doing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Ansgar, you wanted to say something. I were you thinking when you were asking about the phases, were you thinking about a comparison, for example, with the breathing network in the pre-Bertzinger complex where you have, ex where you would see from the outside, you see somebody's inspiration and expiration, and then the network can do sort of these are intermittent, these phases in between. Yeah. Um, were you referring to that in a sense? No. In fact, uh, it's nice that you mentioned this. You know, we are looking right now in breathing and, and there's a very sharp transition from 
the offset of inspiration to the onset of expiration. If mm -hmm. People talk about the inspiratory off switch mechanism, which is really like the guiding principle, which, which reminds me a little bit to the, to the switch from like the unloading of the muscles to the swing phase, which seems to be also like the sharp point in locomotion, the attractor, so to speak. And it, it reminded me when you, when you talked about that the other day um, in the talk that you gave uh, that I was listening, it reminded me on the phasic influence of the tegula, which essentially you could over-exaggerate the function by saying with the activation of the tegula, the CPG for flight is resetted every single cycle and restarted. However, for the walking situation, I think you have two non-steady transitions. One is liftoff and one is touchdown. So I, I think with the differences in the sensory control at both ends, and one being, for example, unloading and then moving, movement when it goes to swing, and the other one being the touchdown being load comes in and then load is assisted in order to make the stance phase happening. I was, and we, as we do not know the networks and the explicit internal organization, that you may essentially have here two time points that do the same thing, essentially. But I think that's, for me at least, I, I don't, don't have a, a firm answer to that at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we're talking about touch, and I think it's a special year today, you know, because we, we just heard about the Nobel Prize to David Julius and Ardem Patapoutian uh, on touch and, and their discoveries. And, and do you think that can also start a little bit of a revolution in locomotion that we can stimulate, let's say, the piezo channels or something like this to study the role like using optogenetics and genetic tools, for example, also in Drosophila and, and use that to gain insights into the role of these sense organs. Oh, I think Ansky is the person to address this because well, I think this, this is, is really is beautiful work. Yeah, actually, that's what we can do, essentially express channel rhodopsin or, or other optogenetic tools in, in sensory neurons. This is very nicely can be done in, in Drosophila, and we do it. And yes, what we, for example, have done in, in Drosophila, and this is currently written up, this is a thesis work of Gizardingus, that we activate or inactivate specific subsets of Campaniform Sensilla, or she did activate or inactivate them during walking, uh, as well as at rest. And so the interesting thing here is that actually that's very interesting in case we get <laughs> hypothesis to be tested. It's still at the moment with the methodological opportunities we have. And that also means that which company form sensor can I access neurogenetically? Okay, because it's not as you could have all 42 company form sensor that, that you would like to have access to that you could have lines that tag them individually, that's not possible. So in that sense, I think this kind of work shows very nicely that when you silence company form sensor, you change the leg movement as well as you change intellect coordination, okay? And so that's, that's actually, yeah, that has to be done as well. In those large insects, um, we can't do it at the moment. I have currently a postdoc trying to establish CRISPR-Cas in the stick insect. And we are pretty happy with the test experiments at the moment, but there's a long way to go. And we have simply to wait and see how it, how it works out, whether it pays in a sense. And you know, one thing that I might add is that 
one of the things that I have looked at and I'm interested in pursuing, and I wish more people would be, are the, there are beautiful experiments you can do with those techniques in Drosophila, but a lot of the things dealing with mechanics have been, have been experiments have been addressing it in larger flies, blowflies. Mm -hmm. And I think that the work of Mike Dickinson, for example, was really beautiful when, in looking at larger flies, which have similar receptors. It's not that Drosophila is unique. It, the diptera have Absolutely. different arrangements of compoundiforms that so then do, then the, the, the somewhat change it than the larger in, in orthoptimum insects. But I think that there really is a need for people to be able to have both the information that's attainable from the optogenetic techniques and the contemporary, the, the classical neurophysiological techniques to interpret those results. Absolutely. And, and Mike Dickinson has also the RoboFly, where he can also do very cool stuff combination with, with the mechanics and, and the neurons. You know, Anska, there's this new technique coming up with this uh, holographic stimulation where you will be able to actually mm -hmm. uh, stimulate individual neurons or maybe yeah. individual company from Cecilia to titrate, et cetera. So, yeah. well, good thing we're young, we can do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's, there's one thing actually, which is interesting for, we just published a new method for actually optically inactivating company from Cecilia with laser, with blue laser light. The mechanism is not clear yet, but it, it's a transient inactivation which actually is very nice because it replaces this brute force <laughs> removal that you normally have to do if you want to check out what the functional role is. So, yeah, but I'm looking forward to this whole holographic stimulation. It's, well, we have to try. I've heard it's extremely complicated. Sorry, Sasha. But the, the other thing is that the way to do some of these experiments is actually in simulation. Yeah. And I think that if you look at how these things are, are you have hypotheses as to how they're functioning. I think that Nick is essentially developing an artificial nervous system control mechanism and that you can then look at and, and also test in a robotic leg what it is, what happens when you decrease this type of information or increase it or have perturbations. So I think that one of the most powerful things that's developed is the ability to do not only the experimental work, but to reproduce it in, in simulation. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that's the beauty about this robotic approaches and et cetera. So, so what, like we talk about the future already, but maybe let's, let's be more concrete. So what do you think are the future steps starting from this project here? Well, I'm, as I already mentioned, we're currently looking at not just horizontal walking, but what happens when an animal goes uphill or downhill? How is the feedback change? How are the motor responses changed? And the thing about it is that the, the force feedback is actually thought to be able to adapt to the locomotory pattern. And so we could look at, we are looking at how is it that the signals change when the animal's orientation relative to gravity changes. And this also is being addressed in by looking at individual legs. So how is it that the front legs, which can be major sources of forces generated when the animal is going uphill. How does that change the control mechanism for the entire system? And I think that this is combining both the naturalistic stimuli because we have the, the torques, the, the joint torques that are available for us to be able to utilize. And that's what we're doing in the uphill and downhill study that from the work of 
of Chris Baumann. So I think the question is, and under natural circumstances, how does the locomotory system adapt under these circumstances in changing the behavior? Interesting, absolutely. Yeah, Nick? Yeah, and I, yeah, so of course, to build on that, you know, I think what's, what Sasha was just saying a moment ago about the importance of modeling these things to really explore the full range of possibilities, you know, I, I think this is really important because while we are uncovering all of these really interesting response properties of these scintilla, and, you know, we're cataloging where they are and their directional sensitivity and all these important things. Um, from my perspective as an engineer, there's still a question of, yeah, but why do you need all of this information? Clearly it's very important. Clearly it's common across all these different families of insects. Um, but so the things that I'm thinking about in the future are, you know, we have these, this dynamic model of what these sensory discharges look like in response to bending of the legs. And now we're using this as a filter on board our robot so that as the robot walks, it's getting sensory feedback that looks like what the animal gets. And now, you know, as engineers, now we can say, great, what happens if we make this sensors really dynamic and they're adapting very rapidly all the time? Or what if we take away all the adaptation and our sensory data is now reporting totally different types of signals, you know, and then we can say, great, robot, walk from here to there, and we can see what goes wrong and see what goes right in all these different contexts. Um, so on the one hand, it's daunting because there's a, a lot of parameter values to, to test, but I, I really like this bottom-up kind of creative approach because it's one thing to say, we pulled the system apart and we think we understand what it's doing. And it's another thing altogether to say, I understand it so thoroughly that I'm going to build a facsimile of it that can function in the same way. So that's what I'm excited about going forward. Nick, fantastic. And you know, I mean, we shouldn't forget that it's not only important for robotics, but I mean, all these spinal cord injury problems that we have, cerebral palsy, you know, when you have spasticity, you know, how can you do functional electrical stimulation and if you just think about, oh, I want to mimic load, then you will not go far. So I think the idea of what is the dynamic uh, nature of the sensory modality, that this will make a difference uh, when we want to apply this in the clinic. So yes, the more that we know, the better it is in the future. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. You know, I think you're exactly right. If we understand the language that is being spoken, so to speak, by these networks, then we can better interface with it. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah. And it's not only a, only a language, it's a song. It's the orchestration that we just talked. It's, it's fascinating. Anska, what are the future steps? Well, I think most of it is said. One thing that I would interest me personally very much is essentially what I already said in the beginning when I said that we open a new door in order to be able to study force feedback. And I think as we are currently getting a hand on the networks and the multimodal processing of sensory information that is contributing to generating a stepping motor output for locomotion, I think particularly when it comes to force feedback and load feedback, we need to have that kind of test situation as well in order to look at those internal processing steps in a way that essentially they can tell us about what's happening when in a stepping cycle. And to do that, this study sets out a very perfect starting point. So the dream would be actually to be able to, to do these naturalistic stimuli 
at the most what one could consider important um, company form sensilla fields on the leg at the same time <laughs> and now sasha smiles because we have often talked about it and essentially run this as a sensory sort of feedback portfolio and then use it in order to um, analyze processing of sensory information in the control of cpgs and so forth wonderful so now just to to finish up kind of maybe what are the take-home messages that you want the listener to remember except of hey guys insects are the best animals models in the world but <laughs> but what other messages can we bring oh i for me the overall message actually comes from keir pearson who and, and it's, this is echoing what it is that Anska was saying but keir wrote a, a, quite some time ago that what did some of the really groundbreaking experiments on vertebrate locomotion and did it in isolated preparations. And what he wrote was that experiments on isolated pre preparations were useful, provided that the stimuli used were as closely, could as closely as possible reproduce the situation that occurs naturally. And I think that implicit in that was really what it is that we're talking about, which is that when you are studying these things, it's possible, it's necessary to study them in isolation but it's equally necessary to utilize stimuli that occur as closely as they can to those that are naturally occurring within the animal. And we're not unique in so far as thinking about this, but it really is the sort of the core of a lot of things that people have thought about in the past as well. Sasha, it's, it's a little bit ironic and funny that you mentioned Kier because we were doing these experiments uh, with stimulating 1B references in cats and and we were getting a hard time from Arthur Prochaska because he told us, you know, guys, this is absolutely not naturalistic. And so, yes, it, but again, it brings us back what you mentioned before, you know, you have to study both. You have to study controlled conditions. You have to study, you know, also the naturalistic and then finally get the orchestration together. So yes, Kier is my big hero. And, and thanks for mentioning Arthur Prochaska too and all the other people in the field. So Nick, Big take-home message. Yeah, I think I think for me, you know, and I I don't mean to keep uh, muddying the waters with my engineer perspective, but but what I think is really important is that everything about the nervous system is dynamic. I think especially as engineers, we tend to think about states and what the instantaneous static value of different states are. But this study to me has really highlighted that everything is in flux. And as you said before, it truly is an orchestra when everything goes correctly, because there is no, I don't know, it's, it's just everything is always changing. And so I think uh, Sasha's done an excellent job of incorporating that while still managing to extract all kinds of really great and useful information. What a team. Now, Ansgar, take a message. Actually, to be honest, I would like to support the take home message of Sasha as a biologist, as well as of a biologist interesting in, and interested in engineering the one of Nick, because I could simply make come up with new words. But I think if you if I may, I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's the beauty about this interdisciplinary collaborations and, you know, like working together with an engineer having us cellular neurophysiologists working together with a behavioral person and mechanics person. So I think 
that's what's all about science. And, uh, and I hope this is also inspiring for all the students that, that come to the field that obviously nothing has been solved yet and there's still a lot to be done and the field is open for innovation and dynamics. Ansgar. Yeah, and there's one, one story about engineers that I always tell, tell my students and grad students, and I don't know whether Nick knows it. I, you know that there's a series of papers from of publications from my lab dealing with sort of task dependency in sensory processing and model control, uh, comparing forward to backward walking. And, and come on, a biologist would have never thought about studying backward walking in an in stick insect. Why should he or she? The thing is that the engineers were asking these funny questions like, well, what, by the way, Bushkus, what happens if you want to reverse the stepping cycle? I said, oh. And then this is the thing that I love about collaborating with engineers because they come with questions that from the biology point of view, you would not have on the agenda high enough. And, and that pushes science for me in, in bigger steps and bigger leaps than potentially as a biologist myself, I could push it. I have one very brief story that is the same thing. When I was a graduate student and I confronted all this, these experiments about contaminants at the fellow, which I was trying to figure out what they, could they possibly do. I generated all this data by bending the legs and everything else I could think of, took it to my advisor, Dave Moran, and I said, what should I do? And he said, go talk to an engineer. And, and I did, and that actually ended up with the description of the strain distribution within the leg based upon engineering. So it really was, for me, the formulation was essential and really allowed of all of the experiments to continue on too. Well, it doesn't just flow one direction because uh, I think as I noted in my response before, uh, there's all kinds of things that happen in the nervous system and in the animal in general that are very not intuitive. And evolution is not perfect. It's not an optimization process, but it's had a lot of time to try a lot of things, you know? And so uh, as an engineer, it's wonderful to get to see these examples of systems that function very well and function in ways that I would not have stumbled upon, you know? So it really is a, a wonderful, mutually beneficial situation. Absolutely. And, you know, if we believe Elon Musk, we need to develop robots that work on the Mars soon. So we better get going before evolution brings us there. So, hey, everybody, wonderful talking to you. And I look forward to the next papers and our next podcasts. And it's fun as always. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you, Nino. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.